This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of Travel Is Your Business is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. My, my name is Marty St. George. I'm the executive vice president of commercial and planning at JetBlue. And boy, what do I love about travel? I, the core of what I love about travel is like the, almost the DNA of what we do. We connect people. We connect people with each other. We connect people with the world. Um, and that's the thing that, you know, when I go to an airport and I see happy people, when I land in a destination that I've never been in, and I get to sort of see a part of the world I've never seen before, it's like that's the part I get off on. What has turned the aviation industry on its head time and time again over the last 30 years? Coming up, you'll hear from a visionary executive who has stamped his no-nonsense Boston attitude onto the airline industry while maintaining the core values that make JetBlue what it is today. This is Travel Is Your Business, covering the intersection of technology and business in the travel industry. So, Marty, how long have you been with JetBlue? Oh, wow. Um, uh, JetBlue, almost 13 years. And in the airline business, over 30. So it's been a very long time. Wow. And how's JetBlue changed? I think, like, probably 13 years ago, JetBlue was still considered a startup and had that mentality. Maybe it still is. um, But how have you seen it evolved, even in the customer base, the route map, and the brand itself? Well, I, it's funny. There's actually there's actually two questions in there, and I'm not sure which one I want to answer first. But I guess I'll, I'll take the pedestrian question first, which is the business model has changed dramatically. Uh, when I started, so I came. My first job was VP of Network, so I was responsible for where we flew, um, you know, fleet plan, growth rate, stuff like that. And at that point, we had one hub, which was uh, Focus City. I'm sorry, we don't use the word hub of JetBlue. We had one Focus City. It was New York. Um, and we had just come through a very, very rocky stage of um, pretty significant losses for a company that had only made money, sort of 2001, two, three, very profitable company. Then things started turning. And I think 2006, we, I started in 2006. We lost money in 2006. Uh, and then we very slowly were coming back. So I came in really with the goal of just getting my arms around it and figuring out what, you know, from a network perspective, what we had to change. And we made a lot of changes. So now... You know, we basically have six focus cities. There are three primary focus cities, which in addition to New York include Boston and uh, Fort Lauderdale, and then three secondary focus cities. Um, and the actual customer, the go to the, the sort of the go to market um, value proposition for JetBlue has changed a lot. You know, we now have a extra legroom section which people can buy into. We now have a uh, premium product that flies between the coasts and flies to the Caribbean. Uh, which is you know which you would never guess from a low cost airline was keep you know keeps getting voted the best uh, business class in North America. Uh, you know we have changed the business model dramatically, and it's because the business changes. And you know having been in airlines before that didn't change their model uh, and seen other airlines not change their model, it doesn't end well. Uh, you know the last place I worked, uh, I, we went through bankruptcy, and I, I will say parenthetically, bankruptcy is a fascinating process, and I learned a ton, but it's stuff I never ever want to do again. Um, and always in the back of my head with JetBlue, you know, I think we all take it very seriously that, you know, we have a customer value proposition that people do love and would miss. And, you know, we have 22,000 crew members also who are dedicated to delivering that. So from that perspective, um, this change has been a big part of making sure that the customers and crew members continue to have this experience. And I should also mention, because it's important, 
um, you know, our returns have gotten significantly better um, to our shareholders too. So you look at all three constituents over the time period I've been here, things have gotten a lot better. Huh. That's awesome to hear. I'm curious about, you mentioned the evolution about how the model changed. And um, I would say that when, you know, JetBlue started, it was in this low cost carrier kind of mindset, but there's so many premium features that you guys have launched over the span of time. Um, how has that transition kind of unfolded? And, you know, is it is it getting you squeezed between those who were traditionally seen in this premium kind of uh, class? Um, you're saying it's not because it's being rated, but I'd, I'd be curious to hear how that transition's kind of uh, affected the organization. Well, I go back and think about, you know, again, my experience over the time I've been here. And if, you know, when we were at sort of with the depths of our results, um, sort of, you know, when oil had gone to a really high level and airlines in general were not doing that well, and you talk to investors, you would get a lot of comments like, I, what are you? Like, I don't understand what JetBlue is because, like, I understand what network carriers look like, like American Delta United Southwest. I know their model. I kind of know what the ultra-low cost carriers look like. So, you know, Ryanair or Spirit or something like that. But you're in the middle. Like, what's right. the middle? I don't understand what that meant. Like, you get, like which, exists, which of these right? two models? You have the, no one else does what you do, so it must be a bad idea. And by, the way, you re- and by the way, your returns aren't that good. Um, <laughs> so I really don't understand your model. And, you know, honestly, we took that very seriously. But, you know, my answer at the time was, you know, nobody goes to Target and says, why are you not family dollar? I mean, nobody goes to Target and says, why aren't you Nordstrom? Like they sort of get it in other businesses. Like it's – this would be the only business where there are only two business models to me because I don't think that fundamentally – I think that at the end of the day, the customer will tell you what the business model is, okay? Um, the JetBlue fares are not always as low as an ultra-low-cost airline. The JetBlue value is always better than a low-cost airline for people who value that. You know, we have this experience at JetBlue where <clears throat> every crew member goes through orientation together. So when you start your first day at JetBlue, you go to Orlando uh, and you go to our training center and you sit with 150 to 250 people, all of whom are starting the same day. So you could be a baggage handler, you could be a vice president, everyone does it together. But we talk about sort of the core mission of JetBlue and, uh, you know, the company is very much driven by mission and values. The mission is to inspire humanity um, because it is a service business. And I think the, the sort of the secret sauce that the founders knew in the late 90s um, was that if no one is focusing on service and one company is, you will clean up. Uh, but the other thing we talk about is uh, not, no one goes out there and disparages any of these other models. You know, I fly, I've flown Spirit before and uh, I'm really cheap. So, yeah, I mean, I will go there and play the game. You know, the challenge is that, you know, you, you, if you actually want to have the level of service in JetBlue, you pay a lot of money on Spirit. You pay money for seat assignment. You pay money for, you know, carry-on bag, all these sorts of things that we do for free. So as a customer... I think the customer actually will pick the model that they like. And at the end of the day, you know, there are a lot of people who will go to Nordstrom and say, oh, I don't want to go to Macy's. Like, I, no one looks at them and says, you're dumb. They say, oh, okay, you like Nordstrom's. I get it. Like, and I feel like in the airline business, it's very similar. I mean, I, um, I, I have nothing bad to say about Spirit or a legacy airline or JetBlue. Like, let the customer decide. As long as you can produce returns for your shareholders um, at whatever model you have, then you have a good model. Hmm. And then with that, like outside factors, so obviously the price of oil is one that drives us. And then, uh, you know, upcoming, people are starting to get nervous about the economy taking a turn. Sure. Um, God forbid. So how does JetBlue forward proof for something like that um, to make sure we're prepared and that 
all of our customers just don't go to a lower cost carrier when, when and if the economy turns. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny when you answer that, when you ask that question, I realized I never gave the second answer to how has JetBlue changed? Oh, yeah. And is it still a startup? And this is actually the right time for me to give that answer because uh, I think the key to success in that situation is to continue to be agile. And that's an area where I think we still have an advantage. I mean, we're not a startup anymore. I and mean, when I got here, we had about 5,000 crew members. We now have 22,000. Um, and it's not the small company it once was. But I think what's important for us is we have to continue to act like a small company and make changes um, you know, quickly. I, I'll go back to the invention of, you know, the, the, the introduction, excuse me, of Mint when we introduced that in 2014. Um, that was a revolutionary introduction for JetBlue. And not for the reasons you might think. Um, so JetBlue is a company that has five values, safety, caring, integrity, passion, fun. Every crew member knows the five values. So we started working on Mint and this concept of a, a value price premium product. And we found out there was a secret number six value, which um, was egalitarianism. And we had crew members push back pretty aggressively saying, wait a second. So you're telling me that there are going to be 16 people in this airplane and I'm going to treat them very differently than the other 143 people on the airplane. They're going to have a flatbed seat. They're going to have this fantastic food. Uh, they're going to have different alcohol. Like, we don't do that. Yeah. Um, and you know, the communication at the time was, first of all, we all walked back and said, wow, like, that's actually very powerful that your crew members would push back and say, this actually doesn't fit our business model. And also, it's important to us to say, it's a still a service business. If we can't get them on board with delivering this product, it will not, it will not be successful. True. And um, the, 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 the core insight that I think made us successful with Mint was that we recognized that the business need for Mint was the same business need that the founders saw in the Coach product in 1999-2000, which was it's a market with high fares and bad service. And I think if you looked at the premium transcontinental market from New York to the West Coast in 2014, you saw a market with high fares and bad service. Um, you know, the the most the, the, the last airline to introduce service in that market in premium cabin before us was Virgin America, who's now not in business anymore. Um, but they came out with a premium product that had a seat that didn't go fully flat. It sort of had a 90s white leather look. Um, <laughs> Are which, you saying that's a bad thing? <laughs> a, I listen, I, I remember the 90s very well. I, I remember like white, white leather. Um, and it was $2,200. And wow. we sort of looked at that and said, wow, like we could do that for half the price and make a lot of money, which then turned into like, hey, wait a second, we could do that for half the price and make a lot of money. <laughs> and this is a great opportunity for us. And that's sort of how we got to where we are. Yeah. So when you talk about what happens in a recession, um, Every recession is different, and I'm, you know, I started in the in the late '80s in this business, and I've been through multiple recessions. I've been through multiple, you know, wars. I mean, I've I've sort of seen everything. I I remember, you know, I was in Reykjavik Airport, you know, ripping apart my last airline uh, after 9/11, like all the stuff that literally we couldn't, we weren't going to be able to fly like on Monday, because demand had gone down so much. It's like I've done some very very aggressive restructurings of um, of airlines before, and I think if you walk in with the right tools, however this recession plays out, we'll find a way to adapt. Uh, I would say if you look at sort of how JetBlue did during the last recession, sort of the, the, the sort of financial bust combined with an oil, um, uh, oil rush, that was actually almost the beginnings of JetBlue's pr- performance improvement. Because one of the things that we realized was 
Um, you know, in this business from a customer perspective, people talk about business customers versus leisure customers. It's not like that. It's the spectrum. And, you know, the, the line I like to use is every customer is a leisure customer. Some of them also fly business. There are very few people mm -hmm. who fly only business and no leisure. And it's interesting that if you look at the typical legacy airline model, they're not really focused on leisure customers. Like they're, they're very focused on business customers because business customers pay more money. You know, my last, the last place I worked, um, we did a segmentation model. We had seven segments. And the first six segments were about 45% of our boardings and various different types of business customers. The seventh segment was 55% and it was called leisure. That was it, leisure. Now, in the real world, <laughs> there are so many different kinds of leisure. <laughs> right. And at JetBlue, we're 80% leisure company. So we know leisure a lot better. I, can't, I had to come to, and by the way, this is embarrassing and I'm not proud of this, but as someone who did network planning for many years, I came to JetBlue and I realized to myself, wow, vacation is not the biggest part of leisure. Because I just assumed, like it was all very fungible to me. Like it's just leisure. It's all these people who pay advanced purchase tickets and I don't really care who they are. They're not the same. The biggest segment in leisure is visiting friends and relatives business. And what we found during the recession, that sort of 09, 10 period when, you know, after the financial bust, um, the VFR traffic, the visiting friends and relatives traffic is the last traffic to go away. You know, at the end of the day, no matter how, how, how bad things are, you still want to go see your mom if she lives somewhere else. And that actually became a source of strength for us. And I think the fact that at that point in time, legacies really had no focus on leisure at all. When they pulled down in the recession, it's leisure markets that they pulled out of, which sort of that's that only, that only left some you know, carriers like JetBlue and some of these markets. So at that time, it actually worked out relatively well for us. Uh, I don't pretend that that's gonna what, that's what's gonna happen during the next recession. I have absolutely no idea. All we need to have is the right muscles so that you know when we assess the market as the as the as the as demand changes, that we're in a position to actually go and you know make the right changes to the business model. So I'm sorry, that was a really long answer to our short no, question. So, so sorry about very that. Very interesting. Very interesting. You guys, I will talk about this all day. We so. got all day. <laughs> Let's make it all day. Yeah. No, no. Be careful. Yes, for. <laughs> no, I'm very passionate about this. I love. Um, you know, I, I've, it's my first, my first jobs in the airline business were network jobs and I love the, like week to week, you would get a list of all the flights that your competitors added and canceled. And it was like looking at the football scores on Monday, which is how did I do? Like if the answer is I want to take market share in Pittsburgh and I've spent six months doing that, am I getting the share or not? You know, is my competitor pulling flights down? Are they moving the flights somewhere else? Like, I love that competitive side. I love building networks like this. Like to me, I know, um, listen, recessions are very bad for a lot of people, but to me, it's different muscles you get to exercise. Like I'm, I'm like, that's my job. Like I'm, I'm, look, I'm, I'm not looking forward to it, but like when the bell rings, you answer it. So is that how you're essentially looking at, at new routes as well? Cause it sounds like you guys have, have done a really great job of listening to customers and listening to employees alike for, for business decisions. How are you choosing where you fly? Well, we're very lucky in this business that one of the vestiges of regulation is that um, we have a very good database of travel, of customer demand mm. that's collected by the government and given right. to everybody for free. In fact, you can go on the web, you can go on the Department of Transportation website and pull it up yourself if you want to mm -hmm. see. But I can tell you on an average day in the first quarter of 2018, how many people flew from New York to LA, what airline they flew, and on average what they paid. Mm -hmm. um, and if they connected, what city they connected in. So we've got pretty good data. 
And that's data that you know CPG companies pay millions of dollars a year to get SKU data right. and try to reconstruct the SKUs they can't get. We get that data for free. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's one of those things that's been a vestige of, of regulation, but I actually think it's wildly, wildly pro-competitive because if the fares get too high in a market, you know, you will eventually have competitors who say, wow, the fares are really high here. I should go fly there. Mm. Um, and it's actually one of the reasons why at JetBlue, we do talk a lot about, um, you know, not letting fares get too high. Because at the end of the day, if someone's going to stimulate demand by cutting fares, we want to be the ones to do that. You know, we still see ourselves as an airline that loves low fares. Mm. And um, we just talked about this in our recent earnings call, you know, where, where we've got a new fleet type, which is an all-coach A321. It's got 200 seats on it. And we're starting to push them up into Boston because the fares from Boston, Florida were too high. Um, and, you know, to me, if there's a way we can, you know, have 20% more, more service, um, get, you know, 25% more people at a slightly lower fare, we're still profit positive when we do that. Mm. Um, and we, hopefully we have a more dependable long-term franchise. So you go back to the, you know, your very first question, John, about how do we pick where to grow? You know, if you look at the typical legacy airline network or, or – um, you know, an airline like Southwest, which is sort of a hybrid, uh, you know, it's a 45, 50-year-old company, but still, um, you look at the market share in one of the big focus cities, it's, you know, 50, 60, 70%. You know, you look at, you know, some, you know, carrier like Delta in Minneapolis or Detroit, it's probably 75%. Um, our highest sh market share anywhere in the JetBlue system is 27%, uh, which is in Boston. Um, there is a lot of opportunity for us to actually grow in our focus cities. And, you know, frankly, you know, the job that I have, um, and I do this arm in arm with the CFO, who I have a very close relationship with and um, very symbiotic relationship, is, you know, we need to make sure that we're meeting A, profitability goals, you know, B, our financial goals, you know, free cash flow, um, I think most importantly, free cash flow, operating margin, things like that. And, uh, you know, you'll never find a commercial guy that doesn't want to add more. <laughs> doesn't want to add more flying. But we also have to fit, fit financial metrics too. Mm -hmm. It's At the end of the day, as much as and any any person who's in the commercial side, there's an element where you look at it kind of like your own train set and you want to like go build, you know, build the network you want to build. Right. At the end of the day, you, you do work for the shareholders. Well, uh, okay, by the way, so am I talking too long? No, this is great. Answers. I would be curious. You said you had brought a treat for us though. So I did bring a snack. I would love to see. What did, what did you bring us? You want to take it out right now? Yes. Okay. Well, you know, <laughs> so, as I heard the, uh, well, it's funny. I'll tell you. I when I walked into work this morning, sitting on my desk, um, were a big stack of JetBlue Eat Up boxes, which are the the snack boxes that we sell on the airplane, and they're good. And I think I'll eat them, and they're pretty good. But it's not that interesting, and it's also a little bit shilly. Like even though I'm a sales guy, like sales is my responsibility. I don't want to be the guy out here like pumping some like. Oh yeah, go buy an eat box next time we're on the airplane. <laughs> Although, by the way, it is, it is I do it's I, delicious. It, it is in my budget. It is good, and I would like you to buy eat up boxes. But um, they, they, I didn't get a lot of prep on the snack, but I uh, said it should be something unique with a story to it that means something to you. Mm -hmm. So I have three rolls of Necco wafers. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> so there's one, there's two, oh my god, and there's three. Okay. Thank you. So. What um, are these? Necco wafers. 
So, John, would you like to tell them what Necco wafers? You know what Necco wafers I, are. I, I, well, I don't know the backstory of them, but I'll I give grew you the backstory of Necco wafers. Yeah. Uh, if you grew up in New England, you grew up with Necco wafers. Yeah. Necco wafers. Um, for those of you who have ever on Valentine's Day gotten those conversation hearts, which yeah, are those yeah. shocky things, <laughs> Necco wafers are basically the origin story of conversation hearts. Oh. So, a hundred plus years ago, um, Necco wafers. Uh, that what you, when you taste a Necco wafer, it's going to be a conversation hut. They're just very thin and they look like little discs. Yeah, and it means a lot to me because I went to school in uh, I went to school at MIT. Um, the Necco factory was on the MIT campus, so it's oh. about you know the the main the main entrance at MIT is seventy seven Massachusetts Avenue. The Necco factory was probably like one hundred and fifty Massachusetts Avenue, and in the summertime or like when the weather was nice, you could smell the Neccos on campus. <laughs> Now, this is, you know, in the 80s. Now, they don't make them there anymore. They moved to a different factory. And unfortunately, Necco just went out of business within oh. the last wow. couple of months. So, um, and so my dad still lives in Boston. I still go to see him, you know, when I can. And I was up there at the time that Necco went out of business. So, of course, I went to a store and bought, like, a case of Necco. <laughs> I was about to ask. So I'm like, I'm never going to see these oh again. <laughs> this is the candy of my youth. And the, the, the reason I, I, I wanted to share it is because it's... If you haven't seen them before and you eat them, it's it's uh, uh, there are certain people who are going to hear this and say, oh, my gosh, what a great idea. I love Necco wafers. And there are people who are not from New England who may have eaten Necco wafers are going to say, oh, my God, who eats them? But this is my chance to say RIP Necco because I uh, – uh, I know the candy business is a tough business. You know, airline business is a tough business. All of tra travel is a tough business. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's a piece where, you know, your dream to me as a brand is that would people miss you if you were gone? Yeah. And I'm going to miss Mecca. Oh, man. <laughs> These are great. Thank you for so, sharing you your last stock. I do want one, yes. They're yeah. really good. I'm very colorful Especially focused. if they're limited edition. Oh, these are quite limited. You can still buy them on eBay and stuff because people stocked up. Knowing that there'd be a there'd be a black market in Necos, um, the, the deep web. I did not. Do that. Yes, we have, the, we have the dark web of Neco wafers. Um, my favorite, you know, best. If you were thinking, either you guys would be asking me a favorite color. My favorite colors are pink, mm -hmm. not blue. Um, no, so I'm sorry. I, I'm not. I'm not always a company guy. Uh, pink, <laughs> orange, yellow. Pink, orange, yellow are the best colors. Um, and I will warn you, and I just took a stack. So oh, awesome. I will warn you that uh, there is a black licorice one in there, which I do not recommend unless you really like black licorice. Okay. That's but, the worst um, one. Yeah. And it's, it's <laughs> Necco made a lot of different candies, but none of them had icon iconic status like this did. Hmm. This is really good. Am I allowed to I eat while I'm on the podcast? And the thing is, it's a very – that was the packaging 75 years ago. It's, in, it's basically – for those of you on the podcast, you can't see it. You can Google it. <laughs> It's basically in a wax paper tube, um, and they've been in these wax paper tubes forever. And you used to be able to – there were days you could go take a tour of the Necco factory and on Mass Avenue, Cambridge. And the Necco factory was using the same equipment that they had used since like the 20s and 30s to make this stuff on. It was really – I mean, as an engineer, it was fascinating mm -hmm. that so cool. no one had gone through there and said, yeah, there's got to be a better way to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I love that though. That's so funny. So, like, this is a much better story than the eat up boxes, which I think would have been really boring. This is really good. Coming up, you'll hear Marty's thoughts on data for airlines, a hint of what the future looks like for JetBlue, and what it's like being involved with JetBlue's investment arm. Entrepreneurista. 
a woman who organizes and operates a business, taking on greater than normal financial risks in order to do so. One who has a drive, passion, and vision with an undying determination to succeed. She is fiercely motivated, ambitious, and competitive, forging her own path to independence and success. That's an entrepreneurista. Through the conversations on the Entrepreneurista podcast, we want to celebrate failures, reflect on successes, and get unfiltered about what it takes to be your own boss. This is the Entrepreneurista podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have, with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done, and what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram, with no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneurstapodcast.com. Keep up with the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Travel Biz Show. That's Travel B-I-Z Show. Our episodes are available on iTunes and Google Play and online at travelisyourbusiness.com. Plus, there are a lot more great shows on Mouth Media Network. Take a trip to mouthmedianetwork.com to enjoy them all. And remember, we love fan mail. Drop us a note to say hi, suggest a guest, or if you'd like to become a sponsor on the show, email us at travelbizshow at mouthmedianetwork.com. So, Marty, you were talking a little bit about the incredible access that airlines have to free data from the DOT. Um, but airlines are notorious, notoriously kind of lagging in customer data and even predictive maintenance data. What are your thoughts on that and even the vision for what the future is going to hold? Well, from a data perspective, um, I think you're right. I, I think if you look at where airlines tend to be on customer data, we are way behind the Amazons of the world and some of the companies that have really made this an ad form. For a service business, I don't think this industry has been as customer-centric as it could be. And I think that, you know, when we, there's an element to where I think we have an advantage. I, I, it's something I paradoxically call last mover advantage. Um, this, is a, this is a marketplace where technological advances, it's not quite Moore's law, but there's certainly been some really, really great advances on things like CRM. In the time period that we've been trying to figure out as an industry what to do, the state of the art has gotten so much better. So I think there's a last mover advantage on that, <clears throat> that we haven't built on an old an old uh, architecture. So from that perspective, you know, we have a lot of plans for our 2019 CRM path going forward, none of which I want to go into a lot of detail on. But, um, you know, for JetBlue, I think what the reason I get so excited about it is we are fundamentally, we fundamentally see ourselves as a service business. And I think that with respect to the legacy airlines where I've worked, um, they more see themselves as an operating business. Than, than, than a service business. And listen, it's a business where the most important thing for every single airline is safety. And every airline spends millions and millions and millions of dollars a month on making sure that they're extremely safe. So I don't disparage focusing on an operating business and we focus on our business as an operating business. Um, I think it's important to make the focus not just on being an operating business, but also being a service business. And I think frankly, the customer orientation of JetBlue is one of the reasons why we've been so successful versus other airlines that may not be so customer focused. With respect to predictive data, um, this is an area where the, the aircraft manufacturers have really led the way on the, the amount of data that, that we can um, 
we could obtain. Some of the new technology airplanes, you know, we've had manufacturers tell us that they're measuring the amount of data they're getting in an hour off an airplane in the, you know, multi, multi, multiple gigabytes of, of data, whether it's engine performance, avionics performance, aerodynamic, all sorts of things like this. And I don't think any of us are truly prepared to how to use that data, uh, with how to use that data. Um, so I'm actually very excited about it. You know, I think there is a lot of predictability in um, keeping airplanes operational. Uh, and I'm really excited about some of the uses of data. You, you know, JetBlue Tech Ventures, we've actually done some investing uh, in some groups that are you know, finding ways to use data in a much more creative way for this business. Uh, some which are public, some which are not public. But uh, I think it's an incredible opportunity for us. As long as you maintain that core of running a great, reliable, safe operation, um, you know, layer on top of that, a customer focus, you know, I think there's an incredible opportunity there. Yeah. And, and I, I totally agree. And speaking of JTV, a topic near and dear to my heart, I know you're on the investment committee. What do you look for before approving investments? And also, what isn't there that you wish were, was there? What startup yeah. do you kind of hope to see every time you go into one of those meetings that's solving for something wow. that you haven't seen yet? Pie in the sky. <laughs> okay, well, first of all, let's talk about what, you know, what the experience has been fantastic because, um, you know, a lot of people at JetBlue have spent time going through the D school at Stanford and understanding how design thinking works. And I, uh, I have not done it myself, unfortunately, just because I haven't invested the time in it. But I, I really get excited when someone from outside the business has identified a business problem that we've sort of always taken for granted. And come in and said, hey, you know, it's actually a really interesting way to fix that. Maybe I want to be the one to fix that for you. Like mm -hmm. those solutions are fantastic. You know, there's a company right now called Climacell um, that we've invested in. This one has we, – we have talked about this publicly. But um, Climacell has basically found a really creative way to give us micro-local weather forecasts. And it's obviously extremely important in this business because um, – you know, one of the challenges about the airline business is that there's so many elements of a good operation that we don't control. We don't control the weather. We don't control air traffic control, which are really, really important inputs. And unfortunately, weather problems, air traffic control problems are a major contributor to customer dissatisfaction, and it's things you don't control. So the ability of Climacell to help us say, hey, you know what? If the National Weather Service forecast says – we need to stop flying in Boston at 1600 because the snow is coming. And Climacell comes in and says, by the way, it's coming at 1500 and you better stop now or you may have a lot of planes stuck. There's an incredible amount of value in there. It's value yeah. for us for an operation. It's value for customers so that we can make sure that they've got a better chance of having a great experience versus getting surprised. Um, you know, we've, I don't think any of us looked at that and said there's got to be a better way to do weather forecasts. You know, when, the, when the snow showed up an hour earlier, it's like, damn, how'd that happen? Like, well, guess what? We don't have to worry about that anymore. Now we have someone else out there saying, hey, listen, I'm going to tell you it's going to show up an hour early and you can plan for it in advance. Like, that's the stuff that I look at. I'm like, I absolutely want to invest in this and I want this product because this is going to help us be better at what we do. Like, those are the things I really get excited about. Um, and I think it's, you know, being in my job when I've basically done the marketing job for like nine years, maybe? Eight or nine years. Yeah, nine years. 2009 when I first went to marketing at JetBlue. So I was there sort of a lot earlier in the dot-com era. And I still remember a um, uh, someone who had cold called me, I think the MIT Alumni Network, found me on LinkedIn or something. And said, oh, I went to MIT, blah, blah, blah. We have this incredible product. We think this would be amazing for JetBlue. Great. Well, we should talk. 
Well, you got to sign an NDA because this is really, really hot. And like, we cannot have this idea stolen. Like, it's a really big deal. Okay, fine. It's not uncommon. It's happened. Send me the NDA. Sign the NDA. You know, we made a couple of tweaks, whatever. They come down to visit us in New York. Uh, and they're in this, it's, it's our old offices, which are out by the airport. And when this sort of dumpy conference room, and these guys come in and they come in and they say, listen, we have created this company and we have found a way to gamify the experience. And we think that the next big decision is going to be giving away frequent flyer points um, through gamification. And that was it. And I said, yeah, and then what? <laughs> well, no, that's it. I'm like, like that's the big idea. It's like we sort of already do that already. <laughs> well, no, we don't do it like we do it. I said, well, but no, you don't no, do I, it yet. But why did right? I sign an NDA for something that I'm already kind of doing? Because we had this badge program. We just right. started this badge program, so we're sort of doing that at this point. And no, no, you don't understand. This is a really big deal. So fine. They left, and we sort of all looked at each other like, I can't believe we went through all this like hullabaloo for these guys. Right. So the guy called me on the phone afterwards. What'd you think? Blah blah blah. And I said, listen, thanks for coming. Very interesting. Like, you should have done a little more research before you came. And second of all. <laughs> That's a very kind like, way to put that. I feel, like, <laughs> I feel like, listen, I know what you're trying to do, okay? You want to get rich. And I get it. I want to get rich too, okay? We all want to get rich, okay? Everyone wants security. Um, I, I, I wish you guys had spent time thinking about, like, the business problem. And what business problem you're going to solve and the effect you're going to solve it really differently. That's how you get rich. Like if I can create a world where I can make you rich and I can make my company more profitable, that's a great alignment. Like you just need to think of it like what's the user going to think about that because that's not going to actually fix my problems. Like I need your problem to – like I want to fix your problem and my problem at the same time. Like you need that right, lens. Right. And it's funny because I, I, I was a very nice guy and I, was, I liked him. And um, he meant well but he didn't understand the market well enough to know. And then I saw probably three months later, they had a first funding round. The company was valued at like 120 million bucks. Uh, and I won't, I won't say who did the funding because it may tip off who the company is. Uh, and they were out of business like nine months later. But this guy got his, I probably made 30, 40 million bucks at 25. And you know, I don't think I've made that my whole life. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, who's a dummy here? It's me. Not him. <laughs> so I would actually probably uh, say it's the other investors. But... Well, you know, okay, sure. <laughs> they were dumber than the I was. The other ones are really lost some money. It, there, was so. it was an extremely big company, so I'm not sure they noticed. Uh, okay, <laughs> got it. Right. But um, no, I mean, to me, what I get excited about in JT is in JTV is when we have people who come in there who have done an incredibly good job of identifying a business problem, and the bell goes off in my head and say, "Oh my gosh." That is fantastic, and I think it's great for our customers. And that's a really long answer to a short question, but yeah. hopefully that's that's a great answer. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm we've talked about like this future sense. You've talked about like a year from now, this CRM that you guys are kind of you know well, getting next, into the next, the next version of CRM for us. Yeah. But um, so, what are some of the, the big goals? Um, like one year from now, five years, sure, you know that type of thing. Well, I, I want to start by saying. That if you asked me in 2006 when I started at JetBlue, in fact, I'm, David Neilman, the founder, asked me in 2006 what I wanted JetBlue to look like five years from now. Uh, I wish I had my answer back because it was so different than, you know, I'd say of what I predicted in 2006 for 2012, maybe 25% of it happened and 75% of it different. Did. Can you share what that was? Well, listen, I, I definitely went in. I'll t well, I was interviewing for a network job, so I was really focused on the network. 
And you know, my line, my comment at the time was the most important thing for me is we have to diversify the network. Um, we cannot be dependent on one focus city, which is New York. Um, and you know, to me, that is that is safety. If if you're talking about uh, you know economic downturn, if you're talking about competitive incursions, there's a lot of reasons why it's just a better business model. So that we absolutely nailed. So of the things I told him, that was one of the things we absolutely nailed. Um, you know, I would say the rest of my focus was the most important thing here is we have to make sure we don't change this place too fast. And I told the story from, uh, so this is 2005, 2006, I was interviewing. And the first, I remember the first Malcolm Gladwell book, I think it was Tipping Point was the first one, or the first one I read at least. And the first chapter in the book was about hush puppies. If any of you have read the book, have you guys read the book? Yeah, I have. So I have. Story about hush puppies. I remember that one. And I and David, who is a genius, our founder, uh, one of our two founders, um, uh, also self-proclaimed ADD, says he's never read a book, you know, in his life because he you know, he's, he thinks too fast and he can't have the patience to through a book. So he had not read the story, and I think the key to the hush puppy story to me was, um, hush puppies became really cool and really really hip. Uh, and they were so, like the, the hush puppy orders were like going up by an order of magnitude. And like the Brooklyn hipsters loved hush puppies. The hush puppy people had no idea <clears throat> why their orders were going up. By the time they figured out what was going on, it wasn't a fad anymore. <laughs> and I said, David, like I, as an outsider, not ever living, having lived in New York in my entire life and not knowing JetBlue from the inside, knowing it from the outside, I'm afraid that JetBlue is the hush puppies for New York. Like New York is a place, it's a fast moving place. There's always like the fad of the year. And then a year later, people look back and say, oh, I can't believe we loved Hush Puppies. Boy, we were dumb. <laughs> okay. Like at one point, it's like I, everybody wants PBR and then they make fun of PBR. Like that's sort of the New York <laughs> cycle. I said, my biggest fear for JetBlue is like we have been a hip brand for six years. That's a long time in New York. <clears throat> like my biggest fear is what are we going to do to like, what do we do to make sure we don't end up being the next Hush Puppies and screw it up before we know? And I said, frankly, like, I don't want to be the guy who comes in and says, oh, yeah, <laughs> Marty, yeah, I think I screwed up JetBlue. Like, that's, I like, that's my biggest fear. I don't want to be that guy. Um, so, you know, my whole point was, like, doubling down on some of the stuff that made JetBlue really successful. And it turns out the things that have been most successful since that time period, besides the network, which I do feel very good about, were things like our even more space product, which nothing we'd ever imagined doing. It's a $300 million top line profit, uh, profit contributor right now. Meant we haven't released a lot of numbers about it, but extremely creative to profitability. These are things I never would have imagined back then. So when you ask me what's Jacket Blue going to look like in five years, um, I can absolutely talk about the things that I think should never, ever, ever change about JetBlue. Uh, and I'm not going to be as arrogant as I was with David about the stuff that shouldn't change. The core of what is never going to change is it is always going to be a company with a strong mission and values, a strong culture, and a strong customer focus. Um, one of the things I get excited about with tech ventures and our latest um, subsidiary, which is uh, JetBlue Travel Products, is that you know we're finding ways to expand the JetBlue reach into the full travel cycle. So, for mm -hmm. example, you know Travel Products, you know we'll sell vacation packages. We've got a couple other products coming out in Travel Products that they're going to be very interested. Um, that are things that traditionally airlines have not done, which I get very excited about. But at the core, they're all going to have that <laughs> DNA of JetBlue, which is service and values. Interesting. And so what are, well, I guess, are there more subsidiaries you're able to share that are on the horizon or are these kind of still in the rollout phase here? Um, there's nothing I'm willing to share. Um, you know, I think 
uh, and it's not like there's a 10 year horizon of like, we're going to launch a subsidiary every year. Mm. But I think as we, as we, as we organically find places where the JetBlue brand we think can be extended, we're going to look for those opportunities. Um, you know, the one thing that we're very lucky about is it is a beloved brand. Um, we had research, this reached probably 10 years ago, and, you know, we had this research that basically said, you know, if JetBlue uh, fixed garage door openers, I would trust JetBlue to fix my garage door opener. <laughs> um, because at the core, people feel like we're an accessible brand that at the core is service-oriented and fair and nice. And I think that, you know, in, in, the, in the world that we're all in right now, I think that's actually pretty nice, uh, some pretty nice DNA that I want to make sure we exploit. Um, to, to help sort of expand that brand. At the end of the day, we still have the overwhelming majority of our customers who only fly us once a year. So you can love us, but you know, if you, yeah. was, you gotta find a way to parlay that love into you know, a more regular connection. I'm a really big believer in authenticity and predictability and consistency. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you, you know, one of the brands I really admire a lot is Target. And a friend of mine used to be the CMO there. Um, and I used to talk to her about this, which is um, if I looked at marketing communications from Target and they never used the word Target in it and didn't have the like the bullseye logo, you'd still know it was Target. Like there, everything about that, everything about how they portray themselves outwardly is really consistent. I really admire that a lot. Um, and it's funny. I think they've done the most amazing combo of being able to continue to be contemporary and move forward and move the brand forward, but also not lose that part of the DNA. I think that's actually really hard as a brand, and I really admire them to do that. You know, the other example I give, and this is more, and also as a marketer, I love, like I've always said, every marketer, you're either a frustrated copywriter, a frustrated art director, <laughs> or a frustrated, <laughs> uh, but oh I was a frustrated, I was, I, and, or frustrated designer, and I'm actually... I'm the frustrated copywriter type. So unfortunately, my team knows I love the monkey with copy. But I don't, <laughs> I don't anymore, but I resist. But um, I'll just speak as a frustrated designer for a second. Um, in our own space, I'd like to pick out Lufthansa because if there was a Lufthansa ad in Cyrillic, you would still know it was a Lufthansa ad. Um, they're also very consistent in their um, – uh, in their sort of uh, design execution and how they communicate. You know, when I used to do research, the last place I worked, and customers would say stuff like, oh, you know, if they went out in the middle of the night and painted all the white airplanes black and the black airplanes white, I couldn't tell the difference. Um, no one ever says that about JetBlue. Like if, if, if one night they, you know, they turned all the Southwest planes into JetBlue and the South, JetBlue planes into the Southwest, people would know immediately. And I feel the same about Lufthansa. Like you get in a Lufthansa airplane, it looks like a Lufthansa airplane. Yeah. Um, you absolutely know you're in Lufthansa if you've ever flown Lufthansa before. And like that's sort of some touchstones that I think are really useful. And I'd say the same thing about a Target store. I think Target, um, obviously they have challenges between you know, rural stores and suburban and urban mm -hmm. and things like that. But I think Target does a really, really good job. And like it's really important to me as a marketer that I um, – I'm not going to – I'm not going to channel Mitt Romney here, my fellow Massachusetts guy – sort of, uh, and say corporations are people too, but corporations do have personalities. You know, yeah. if you're a consumer, you have an expectation from a brand. Right. And, you know, I love the fact that Target has just been so incredibly consistent for so long about what they stand for, why they're different, why they're not Walmart, why they're not Macy's, and I, I admire that a lot. They've resisted, um, they've resisted the urge to sort of be all things to all people. Coming up, you'll hear more about Marty and his Boston roots. Hello world, I'm George Manley, Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing for Solar. I have a background in broadcast journalism, I've traveled the world, and I love to write. 
But more than any of that, I love to have great conversations with interesting people, and I love to learn their stories. I am so thrilled to be working with really interesting people in the social commerce space as a result of this show. Solar is a place where brands and influencers create content to share with their consumer public. Each week, I'll be presenting a story from an interesting person in this space, and the goal is to learn something more about how this industry is evolving. The goal is to learn something more about the creatives behind the creator-influencer space, and the goal is to celebrate the community that is quickly forming on solar.com. I hope you'll enjoy this show. I hope you'll enjoy our conversations. I hope you'll give us feedback. And if your story is interesting enough, I hope you'll join us on another solar story, the art and business of influence. Solar Stories is presented by Solar Inc. And you can find more episodes of Solar Stories and learn more about solar at solar.com. Copyright 2018, Solar Inc., all rights reserved. Thank you for listening. So, Marty, I'm going to ask a question for all the Av Geeks out there. Um, okay, if, if, you want to do an Av, if you want Av Geek stuff, this could be a whole separate podcast. <laughs> like, that is my passion, so be careful. I know, and be I know you're careful. passionate about the 220s. I am. So tell me, why are you so excited about that aircraft? And then what's next? <clears throat> what's, what's your dream aircraft or the one that you think is just going to be the future of JetBlue? If it even well, is, is a traditional aircraft. I don't know. I don't know to the extent the listeners really want to hear my detailed answer on this. So I'm going to give a really high-level answer about the 220. Um, so I've been, you know, 30 years in this business, and <clears throat> I've seen so many things change in the operational side. Uh, the most important one, which I should have mentioned very early, is that this business is so much dramatically safer in 2018, 2019 than it ever was when I started off. And I think um, – that is a result of incredible technological advances in safety that I am extremely grateful for. Um, so let's start with that. Um, the reason the 220 specifically excites me so much is the technological advances of the 220. Um, the, the, and, and, and airplanes in general, <clears throat> the easy part of the airplane is the tube and the wings. The, the, I shake that back. The easiest part is the tube. The second easiest part is the wing. The toughest part is the engines. <clears throat> and... The 220 was the first airplane that's truly been designed from scratch in the 21st century. And I'll go back actually to, um, you know, our planes, the Airbuses, and the biggest competitor, which is the Boeing 737. Um, the core of the 737, the very core of the DNA, the origin story of the 737 was from the 1950s, from the 707. It's basically the same fuselage as the 707 with new wings, new engines, new configuration, stuff like that. Um, the A320 was basically a plane from the 80s, the A320 family. The 220 is a plane that was that was designed basically in the last eight or 10 years, and technology has changed dramatically. The um, advances on fuel burn in that airplane are, you know, it's in the high teens as far as fuel burn per seat versus competing airplanes. What that means for me is, you know, it's more environmentally friendly, it's more economically friendly, it's going to mean lower fares and hopefully higher profitability. So I'm not going to go through the mechanics of the math. 
um, for the podcast, but there is a – we actually have a presentation on our investor relations website that goes through some of the math of the 220, and it is an absolute game changer. And I will couple that with the fact that it is an amazing customer experience. Um, you know, it's like being in a wide body inside, even though it's a narrow body. The seats are wider than uh, basically sort of A320 width, which is significantly wider than Boeing seats. Uh, it is a great customer experience. And I think it's because this plane was designed from scratch. Uh, I've used this phrase before. I know the designer. Um, we met the guy who designed the airplane. This guy named Rob Dewar. Actually related to the Dewar Scotch family, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but I said to Rob, I said, Rob, if they ever do build the Rushmore of airplane designers, I'm going to make sure you're on it. Because this design <laughs> from all the planes I've evaluated in you know all the years of looking at airplanes, I, I cannot believe what you accomplished with this airplane. Wow. That is... Quite, that is quite a review. That's awesome. All right, listen, and, and by the way, I'm also we've very, you know, <clears throat> we were lucky when we, we, you know, this this concept of like buying new airplanes, a new fleet of airplanes, it's a very big decision for a company because the switching costs are extremely high. Like once you pick a fleet type, you're stuck with it because the cost of getting out of it is really high. We had two extremely good choices: the competing airplane, which was the the um, Embraer E2, um, also some great technological advances. Uh, it was pretty close. You know, I always, and I, by the way, I told the Embraer people this, this is not news. Uh, I fell in love with the C-Series or the what's now the 220 right off the bat, and I told them that. Uh, it was very close in the economics at the end. Uh, I'm, I'm secretly glad that the C-Series won. Uh, if it turns out the E2 would have won, that's fine too. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a business that, the only way we can keep offering low fares is to continue to find ways to, to operate the product cheaper without taking stuff away from the customers. And, you know, I think if you look at a lot of the advances in, in low fares um, in the 2000s and even the two, you know, 2010s, um, the legacies have done it by taking stuff away. And that's just fundamentally not what JetBlue does. So the ability to find a way to get our costs down without having to get into that takeaway game is a big win for us. That's awesome. I have a, a totally different type of question. Um, we're both from around Boston. You're from yes. Boston originally. Yes. What's the thing that you miss the most besides Neko um, from <laughs> from Boston? Uh, wow. Or the area um, generally? Boy, there's a million different ways to answer that question. I know, I'm not right? Sure what the right one is. <laughs> um, I, uh, I mean, I miss everything, but. Um, the thing that I really appreciate, and especially as someone who commutes into New York every single day, uh, is that it is such a small city. It's easy to get around. Um, and frankly, you know, it's funny. One of the things I really miss is there's some benefits of a small city you just don't get in New York. Like, I love it when I'm walking, you know, I'm walking down, you know, Beacon Street and I run into somebody I know. Like, I never run into the people I know in New York because it's just so darn big. Like I, I do, I do miss that sort of small city, that sort of small city experience. I remember my mother um, uh, ended up <clears throat> long after I left. And I, uh, she ended up working for an insurance company that was in uh, it used to be called the Hancock Building. I think it's now two hundred Clarendon, but it was the biggest building in the city. My dad worked and, in the Hancock Building. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> a lot of people did. It's the biggest building in the city. It's a big and one. I remember uh, for the marathon one year. This is probably in the nineties. The marathon one year. Um, she said, oh, we can come watch a marathon from our building. Great. So went to the building and went up to the office. And I remember uh, at one point going up to the top of the building, and it was a 60-story building. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, this building's so short. <laughs> like when I was a little kid, that was a big city. Like I thought this is like as big as the city got. And now that I've been like around the world, it's like, wow, I really appreciate the fact this is a little city. And I, I kind of miss that. And I will separately say 
uh, you know, I'm a monstrous sports fan. I miss the sports a lot. Um, and that was sort of the obvious answer. I didn't want to give the obvious answer, but it's factual. And one of the JetBlue values is integrity. So I have to tell the truth. Um, I miss, you know, when I was a kid, by the time you got to the fourth inning of, the, of a Red Sox game, you, the cops just let you in. If you go out in the bleachers, they just let you in without paying. Uh, I miss going, you know, going scalping Bruins tickets at the beginning of the second period and basically paying like four bucks to just get in because the guy wanted to get rid of a ticket. Because <laughs> uh, that's, you know, those are, those are the teams that I love. So, uh, you know, it's, you, you, yeah, I can see them when they come to New York, but it's not quite the same. Marty, this was great. Is there a final thought that you'd want to share? It can be uh, a reflection on what we've spoken about today. It could be um, more about some other experiences you've had through JetBlue or, or really anything. Something you'd want to share with the listener. Um, you know, wow, that's a great question. And I, the, I'm a big believer you say the first thing that comes to your mind, even if it's a really bad cliche. And so I'm going to, if you indulge me the cliche, this is the first thing that came to mind, which is, um, so I've been doing this for 30 years and I feel so incredibly lucky to be able to do something I love. And um, I think about, um, you know, I've got two kids in college right now and we have that conversation about like, what do you want to do with your life? And, you know, one of the things I say to them constantly is you need to find the Venn diagram, the intersection of something you love to do, something that you'll get paid for, and something that's legal. But as long as you find something that fits inside that circle, don't worry. Because at the end of the day, I've had jobs where you don't want to get up in the morning and go, and there's no worse feeling in the world. So when you guys invite me to come talk about travel and about airlines and stuff like that, and I'm like, wow, like how much do I have to pay you to do that? This is great. I love doing this. Like This is what I love. And uh, I, I love the fact you guys do this podcast and um, uh, I can't imagine that many people listen to it, but I guess you know, hey, for those, hey. for those I'm just saying, sadly, I know it's not true. I've seen the stats, <laughs> but, um, but I will say that, uh, for those of you who are listening, uh, you're my people. So thank you for listening. <laughs> awesome. So Marty, well, how would somebody get in touch with, uh, with you or the work you do at JetBlue? Well, I, I, as a marketer, I mean, every marketer has found a way to either love social media or learn to love social media. I'm the first type. I love social media. Um, so I'm on Twitter at, at MartySG. Uh, I'm everywhere. I'm on LinkedIn. And you know, I say Twitter and you know, Twitter and LinkedIn, people tend to find me on. Um, but you know, my view is, it's funny, when the question came up about doing a podcast, my first thought was, Ugh, every time I do something like this, I'm bombarded by people who want to sell me stuff. So <laughs> if you're trying to sell me stuff, actually neither Twitter nor LinkedIn work. Uh, <laughs> but if you just love airplanes and want to talk, like Twitter and LinkedIn are really good. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again for hanging out with us today. Yeah. This was really fun. Thank you so much. For my co-host, Beth Chapman. Happy trails. I'm the co-host, John Matson. Bon voyage. This has been Travel Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for the show, or to become a sponsor, email us at podcast at travelisyourbusiness.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Travel Biz Show. That's Travel B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, travelisyourbusiness.com. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thanks for listening.
This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.